1: smarts any day of the week. I've benefited from that many times.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Scott Belsky talks about why creative conflict can lead to good decision-making. We actually would always be proud
1: of the fact that we could go in a room and really duke it out.
2: Here's Debbie.
0: I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive, like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? In business and design, a good idea is necessary, but it's never enough. You have to have the skills, the tools, the support, and the grit to turn ideas into reality. Inevitably, things do not go according to plan, and this is when many good ideas founder. Scott Belsky thinks he can help. His new book is called The Messy Middle Finding Your Way Through the Hardest and Most Crucial Part of Any Bold Venture. And Scott Belsky knows from whence he speaks. He co created Behance, the online portfolio platform. When Behance was acquired by Adobe, he became Adobe's vice president of products, mobile, and community. He left Adobe in 2016 to join the investment firm Benchmark, but is now back as the company's chief product officer and executive vice president. He's here today. To talk about his life, his book, and his career, Scott Belsky, welcome to Design Matters. Well, thank you, Debbie. Scott, is it true that above your desk you have a sign that reads "What if the hokey pokey is really what it's all about"?
1: That is true.
0: <laughs> so, give us some backstory. I mean, what if the
1: hokey pokey is really what it's all about? I mean, that would just that
0: would be quite an interesting <sighs> realization. <conundrum.
1: laughs> but it's some, you know, sometimes you do have to, as serious as moments get. When you start to add so much drama to every moment and every decision. And it is helpful sometimes to look up at that sign and be like, oh. It keeps in perspective. It does.
0: I saw another one on Suki Novogratz's Instagram feed. She has one that says, surely not everybody was kung fu fighting. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Scott, your dad was an orthopedic surgeon, your mother was an educator, and in reading your new book, I learned that your grandfather, Stanley Kaplan, who was the son of an immigrant plumber, Mm -hmm. got rejected from medical school because there was a quota for how many Jewish students could enroll. So instead, he became a tutor. Over time, his business evolved into the massive Kaplan Test Prep Education Company, which he nurtured throughout his life and eventually sold to the Washington Post. Would it be true to say that his penchant for founding his own enterprise found its way into your blood?
1: Well, there's definitely uh, a lot about my grandfather that I looked up to and a lot that I learned from him on things that I wanted to emulate and not emulate as well. Like what? He was his business. And in, you know, in the end of the book, I talk about this notion of you are not your work, and trying to sever the connection between the work you do. And it's a tough realization for someone who is creative because, of course, like their work is an extension of who they are, and yet it can't be. Because first of all, it will um, someday no longer be yours. It will be out in the world. And also, if you keep focusing on it and defining yourself by it, you can't do something new. He, He actually sold his business when it was relatively small to The Washington Post Company, and then it became kind of the Kaplan we know today. And I think he struggled after the loss of that company. Yeah, and, I read um, that he was quite depressed. He, de- he became depressed, and it became a um, uh, something that I really thought about when I was selling Behance to Adobe after a seven-plus-year journey where I was so identified with the company. I, I went through a similar question of um, how do I make sure this isn't me?
0: I actually was warned after the firm that I was a partner at the branding consultancy after we were acquired by Omnicom. I was told by my former partner at another company to wean myself out, not to just go cold turkey, because that sudden change in identity would be really difficult to manage. I weaned for three years. Yeah, well, I did as well.
1: I was at Adobe for three years before I left the first time.
0: That's probably not weaning so so much as procrastinating, but for me in any case. If it felt right, it worked. Yes. You stated that your interest in making can be traced back to your childhood. What kinds of things were you making back then, and,
1: and why? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're starting off heavy here, but let's yes, go. Yes, we are, no, I yeah. Mean, I, I had a... Area in the basement that I called Scott's Creativity Area.
0: I love that. And did it I, have a logo? It had a logo. Oh, of course it did.
1: It uh, You know, it had we had a children's museum in Boston um, at the time that had a place called the Recycle Shop, where you would go and pay $5 for a big grocery bag that you could fill up with anything you wanted from all of these big barrels of excess pieces from all these factories outside of Boston. And so you would have little kind of rubber, you know, circles and you'd have, um, they, they once had these like extra pieces from a Monopoly set because the company made these pieces. How fabulous. It was awesome. And you could just take as many as you wanted. And so I would recreate this sort of zone of different buckets of things in my creativity area that I would play with. I also think I spent a lot of time alone. You know, down in this basement. Yeah, I, I read
0: a, that you had a sense of being isolated or wanting to to feel isolated. I
1: did, and why? I've always been an introvert, and also, I have two sisters. My middle sister was born with disabilities, and she is a few years younger than I. And I think she just consumed, rightly so, the gravity of the family, and um, and I think I just kind of managed it by just going and having my space and making things. Do you think that it impacted your? Sense of self-reliance. I think it did in in good ways and in bad. Sometimes I ask myself, and my wife asks me, if I still retreat to the basement, uh, metaphorically. Um, I was going to ask, do you have a nice basement. <laughs> we don't have a basement in New York City, but I, I, I definitely get my energy from being on my own. And I think that there's a there's a loneliness of creativity that I that I love, and I'm not sure why.
0: I know you also had a particular penchant. For mixing various boxes and sets together of Lego to create your own custom creations. And I got really excited because my nephew yes. is doing the same thing. He's making his own custom Legos. And my brother's been a little bit nervous about how satisfied Jackson seems to be uh-huh. with just playing Lego all the time, just making his own Lego. And he's really worried. And I said, no, Larry Scott Belsky used to do that, <laughs> and he sold his company oh, to goodness. Adobe for right. millions and millions of dollars. I think he's going to be fine. And so it's all because of those Legos. Absolutely. Let me tell you, absolutely, absolutely. Isn't,
1: isn't Lego just the, one of the greatest inventions ever? I, I just think. I, from I the, do think so. Yes.
0: Oh, I mean, they're so empowering. Several years ago, you tweeted this. You said, traditional schooling first failed us when we were taught to stay within the lines and finish work before you play. Was this the education system in which you were raised? How did you manage through that?
1: Well, I was very much influenced by what I learned in the first few years of Behance and the team that I built and how antithetical you know, some of the decisions that we made were that were important. Um, For example... I had no business running a technology company. I wasn't an engineer by background. I hired Matthias, who became my co-founder, who was a typographer by background and was only focused on graphic design, had never designed a website. And we hired our first engineer named Dave, who sort of built little websites in his dorm room to help pay for college, but had never built a database-driven, you know, scalable technology ecosystem. And none of us really knew what we were doing. And Matthias had never graduated college. He um, went to design school and then he kind of did his own thing. You know, it it made me kind of question all the conventions of what makes a great team. Everyone's looking for what schools people went to and what experience they have. And here, we built a team that shared a, a tremendous amount of initiative that overcompensated for our lack of experience, but actually ended up serving us. And and, and we actually hired many other people who didn't graduate a traditional college, ended up being some of the greatest performers of our team. So we actually stopped even looking at that part of the resume. We realized that it didn't matter at all to us. What should the education system be today to prepare us in a wor- for a world where labor is being increasingly commoditized and automated, where creativity, the most uniquely human trait, is what ultimately will make us stand out and do something that computers can't do? And why aren't classes geared towards this, especially in the earlier part of education? I know that when you were in high school, you applied to
0: a program in Vermont wherein you lived on a farm for six months, and you were there with 45 other kids on a self-sustaining farm. It's very progressive of your parents to allow you to do something like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my parents uh, would support these whims and interests that I had. And um, they never questioned, like, is this smart or will this— Help or hurt you for? Co- they just kind of went with uh, went with my interests, and that was an, an example. This was a great experience for me. It was forty five students on a farm, and actually, the lessons I took from that were less about farming, and they were more about a interdependent community and how we made decisions and what it meant if someone didn't collect the eggs in the morning. We just didn't have bread, and understanding why that was, and that fostered a sense of what it means to be in a community and to build a culture and that influenced the way I ran a company, I believe, as well.
0: I understand that you first started designing t-shirts in high school. (laughs) Why? What were you designing them for?
1: I always had the entrepreneurial bug, and I also always liked making things. And uh, I remember with my Apple IIgs, there was a program called Ultra Paint. I don't know who made it, but it was one of my first kind of painting programs. And then eventually it was... Photoshop when I was in my early teens. What I, version? I can't imagine that I actually paid for it. I must admit, <laughs> but it was a uh, early, early version of Photoshop, and uh, and I always was making stuff. And a friend of mine, whose initials were B I G, came to me and said, "Would you make me a logo?" And Not I, notorious. No, 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 no. Okay. But his his name is Ben, and I said, uh, "Sure, let's make a logo for you." And we, we were playing with this idea of live big. And we said, well, that would make a great T-shirt. It was that right at the time where No Fear mm-hmm. was another big T-shirt brand. And so we decided to make corporate apparel with Live Big on it and, and, and local like sort of city apparel and stuff like that. And went to trade shows. And it was our first business. Wow. The crazy thing is we wound this business. It was not really a big business. It was a small high school thing. And we wound it down and forgot about it. And in college, I get this call from someone who works at an RV company. You know those big li- those big things you live in, yeah, and they yeah. said we would like to buy the trademark for live big, and the and the domain name live big. And we were like, well, it's an operating T-shirt company, and they were like, well, you know, and they made us an offer, and it was like, wow, from a college student's perspective, it was like that's great. We'll say we sold the company. You have the Midas touch, Scott. You really do.
0: You really do. uh, So I have to ask you about one more high school endeavor. uh Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Talk about that prank in which you and your friends filled thousands of tiny Dixie cups with water and arranged them all precariously around a switchboard. Can this possibly be true?
1: This was in no books. Now I'm like amazed by your level of research, Debbie, but this was a, uh, this was a high school prank that I gathered a group of people to help me execute, <laughs> and we uh,
0: surprised you didn't get kicked out. It was
1: beautiful. It was actually around April Fool's. What so was it for? What we did is we we were seniors, so what is anything for? But we it was April Fool's, and we got thousands of Dixie cups, and we put two and you know in each because the water would seep through. We figured out in our, in our in yeah. our experiment before we actually did this, and then we took the switchboard phone, we put it in, we circled it with with all these Dixie cups filled to the brim with water, and then we used food coloring to put in April Fool's class of 98. And if you could take a picture from the balcony, it was just an amazing array. And the school loved it. And um, and we didn't get in trouble.
0: I think Sagmeister and Walsh did something like that for Adobe, if I remember correctly. There if was this did, aerial shot it. with
1: coffee cups. <laughs> in any case, that's awesome.
0: Um, in, that. <laughs> in 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 two thousand and two, you got your bachelor's science degree in economics, entrepreneurship, and design, and environmental analysis from <laughs> Cornell University. What were you planning on doing professionally?
1: Right. The truth is, it's really a general studies. Uh, I think I graduated officially with a general studies major, which is what they give you when you do so many different things. they don't know which school to give you uh, a degree in or which major. And uh, so that was that's what happened there. I entered with a interest in science of Earth systems. And I, after the mountain school experience, I actually did an internship at the Biosphere Two Center in Oracle, Arizona, where you kind of do field research in this big biodome. And I got really interested in the how systems work and uh, and how, One little thing can throw off an entire system's um, piece, if you will. Um, I entered and, and started to take a lot of these classes in engineering and in meteorology and and um, and and earth systems and realized that I um, I was missing kind of the um, the business side of it like how pollution permits are traded and I got interested in the environmental economic side of it so I kind of twisted towards the environmental economic side and then I took a fateful class my sophomore year under a professor named Sheila Denko in the design environmental analysis major and it was about design. It was like a very entry-level course of design and fell in love with the curriculum as I learned more about it and then took um, some graduate-level courses towards the end of my time at Cornell. For your thesis, you
0: redesigned a resume for creative people in response to recruiters asking students to submit a simple, boring, one-page Word document
1: showcasing their skills. What motivated you to do that? I always felt that the academic transcript and the scores didn't represent at least my talents, and I assumed that was true for many others as well. And it was around the time where the Internet was being used for many different things, and I figured, well, why, you know, why is a resume a black-and-white paper document? Now, obviously, a, a creative um, and someone from a school like SBA has a portfolio, but still it's sort of silly that we're representing these rich experiences with words. And so the idea of what I called the resume, <laughs> uh was, uh, and this came before Behance. We I was going to say um, Resubeehance. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but the resume was intended to graphically and interactively express kind of what you're capable of and what your experiences uh, involved.
0: And I understand that you took that resume and used it to apply to business school, but they wanted you to have practical experience first and you got turned down. So you then went to work and became an associate at Goldman Sachs. You spent four years there, two in European markets and two in the Pine Street Leadership Development Initiative, yes. which you helped grow. Did you feel at home in corporate America? You don't seem like a real Goldman
1: Sachs kind of guy to me. Well, listen, a year into it, I said, I'm not, I shouldn't be here. I but you stayed three more. Well, so I, was, I went to my manager at the time and I, I said to her, I want to leave And she said, um, well, if you could have one job here, what would it be? And I said, well, I'd love to learn how companies run, just to be a fly on the wall and sort of understand... You know when they move organizations and they make all these interesting changes. I was always fascinated by organizational design, although I didn't use that word at the time. And uh, and then she suggested that I interview under a man who had just been hired from Crotonville at GE. Crotonville was GE's leadership development institute, and this guy named Steve Kerr was was hired to be the chief learning officer and was building a small team in the executive office. And they needed an analyst, and so I went and interviewed there, and I had the most amazing experience working in this team for about three years, of executive coaches, of learning professionals, and of people who had been in the business and who are now more interested in building kind of culture and, and, and succession planning and developing the future leaders. It was a fascinating experience of leadership development. And I took so much from that in, uh, for everything else that I ever did going forward. At Goldman Sachs I understand you also began to utilize
0: some of your design skills and realized first realized I guess that design's potential in corporate America was really undervalued. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Well, I remember being in my group requesting Adobe Illustrator and ah. they were like, "What? You know, that doesn't that's not typical of a someone in the Goldman Sachs group to request." And I got pushed back, but I got it. And the reason I got it is because I was tasked on this project that Hank Paulson, the CEO at the time, was, was working on. And he called it his leadership compass. And he had made like a sketch of the, deci- the, the questions he wanted leaders to ask themselves when they were making decisions. And it was made as a compass. And I thought it would be a shame for this to be, again, a Microsoft Word document that represented this interesting Thing he thought of, and so I took Illustrator and I designed, you know, this compass that he ended up using with every partner in the firm in these sort of um, sessions to train decision making. And it was one of those examples of design. In some ways, I always saw it as like the cheat, because you could make a two-page document, you could make a long convoluted discussion, or you could just kind of show rather than tell Mm. uh, what this meant. And to me, like, design was almost like a cheat uh, for getting something done better. You stated that
0: for a company and an industry that had no value for design and organization, you found design to be the solution to many of the problems that they were facing. Yes. Did
1: they realize that, too? It's funny. I mean, I don't think a lot of people see you know, I guess they say great design is invisible and maybe that's why, but I don't think anyone would have seen it as design solving a problem. I think they would have seen it as, oh, he reformatted it mm-hmm. or, oh, he uh, you know took this out and just made it simpler. Even the first job that I despised having at Goldman uh, in a more traditional finance function, one of my jobs was to prepare the morning packets for everyone of the information that they would have to digest. And I had a lot of fun kind of creatively designing it, you know, where would what would go where and whatever. And it I mean, quick fast forward. Um, I remember years later, after my first book, I was, I was asked by the CIA to come in and do this lecture. Uh, on the CIA, the, the CIA. Central Intelligence yes. Agency. And I didn't really know what group I was going to talk to. They wanted me to talk about my book, I thought. And so they don't even let you bring in a computer, of course. So I had to, like, send my, you know, PDF in advance, and they had to scan it or whatever. And, but I go in, and I realize that the team I was asked to speak with is the team that merchandises the information to people on the field. And what they realize is they have so much information that they want people to pay attention to, but if they don't use design practices, no one's going to look at it. It was almost like they were realizing, oh, maybe newspapers are onto something, you know? <laughs> and they wanted to hire someone.
0: 150 to... <laughs> years later. Right. No,
1: it's funny, though. They didn't see it that way.
0: While working in the corporate world, you had a realization that the creative world was one of the most disorganized communities on the planet. Yes. That's a big statement. What made you feel that way?
1: Well, this was the frustration that inspired Behance. And because I had a lot of friends who are either designers or architects or people who had decided to become photographers, and most of them as freelancers are working in agencies, I, I found them to be perpetually frustrating when they were navigating their careers always at the mercy of circumstance you know never getting credit for the work that they were doing always kind of going you know almost shoot by shoot putting food on the table type of behavior and and i i found these people to be so so talented and i just uh, it was frustrating to me they would spend time on their online portfolio sometimes it was usually always out of date and no one would find it you know if you type in photographer in new york you're not going to find my friends' photography websites. And and so it just it didn't make sense to me. I figured these are the people that make life interesting. These are the people that compel us to take action on things around us. To these are the people that move us. These are the people that should have such incredible careers. And yet creatives are always taking advantage of headhunters were marking them up 60 to 80% on average and trading them around. You know, they they'd place them in one place and then try to pull them and place them somewhere. It just felt icky. And the idea was, what if there was a company that didn't focus on helping creative people be creative, but helped them become organized? So you decided
0: to start this company. In 2005, you met Matthias Correa, who became your future co-founder, and you left Goldman Sachs to start Behance in 2006. You started Behance as a blog. I could not believe that when I read
1: it. Why? We were inching our way into a world that none of us knew. And I felt like the best way to build credibility and to learn was to profile those that we admired, those that we wanted everyone else to be more like. And so we would go to different creative professionals we admired, and we would say, we don't want to know where your ideas come from. That's what everyone else asks you. We're not going to ask you about your best project in your portfolio. How do you organize? Like, how do you manage people? How do you hire people? Instantly, I realized that was a question they didn't ordinarily get. And I also realized that there were some themes in their answers. And I felt like this was super interesting. Every creative person needs to better manage themselves, better organize, become a better leader. And and, and maybe these are the obstacles to getting in the way of uh, ideas happening. So you left your cushy,
0: well-paying job at Goldman Sachs (laughs) to start a company helping creative people organize their work and portfolios. and people were like, yeah, good luck with that. And what did your parents think?
1: (laughs) You know, again, they were always always supportive and they always felt like, you know, if Scott has this uh, interest, we're going to support him. They never really questioned me so much. And, and also they they helped support me financially during this transition as well. Because you
0: self-funded the entire enterprise. We
1: did. And uh, we bootstrapped it mostly by selling the paper products, which I'm sure we'll get to. But, you know, they were my greatest advocates. And, um, and they made a, a small investment in Behance, which was big for them and certainly big for me at the time. And I remember feeling really uncomfortable about it because that was the first time where I felt like, oh, you know, they're and the way they said it to me is like, this is money we might give to you someday anyways, you know, in the, in the future. So we're going to give it to you now. Did it, you give like, it back? They, they they got equity for it. So they did quite well.
0: <laughs> now, were you nervous? How, how strongly did you feel about this idea that you were willing to quit this job at Goldman Sachs and put your own money and your parents' money yeah. into something that had absolutely no guarantee
1: of success? None. Yeah. I um, And it's funny, I really... I really believe we were onto something. And uh, now I never, and Matthias and I kind of joked about this years after starting Behance, that we never even talked about where it would go. We never talked about, maybe we'll sell this company someday or go public. I mean, it was the exit scenario literally for years, never came up. We loved what we were doing. We wanted to figure out a way to make this a real business. And, um, and we figured someone's got to organize the creative world. Like this just has to exist. So talk about the paper products that you were just referencing. Well, at the very beginning with this blog, what I realized is that our mission was to organize the creative world and that we would do it any way we possibly could. And I admittedly wasn't sure which way would work. It was either we would become the foremost resource of knowledge for how to be organized as a creative professional. Uh, Maybe it would be the books that we write. Maybe it would be. This paper product, we designed a paper product, and actually I had designed this for myself at Goldman using Illustrator. Um, It was the way I took notes when I was working at Goldman. I would write notes and anything actionable I'd write on the right-hand side. And I also had a back burner area for things that I wanted to kind of stew every now and then but weren't actionable yet but may someday be. And I would use Goldman's Color Copier, and I'd make a lot of them. And I would, uh, you know, people would always say, what are you using there? And I'd say, oh, yeah, here's a few here's a few sheets. Um, so when we started Behance, I decided, let's make this one of our first products. And Matthias, of course, redesigned the whole thing beautifully. And we got a small paper stationary printing company in, near my home in Boston to do this first round for us. And they sold really well, actually. We started getting carried in all these different stores. I remember... Cool Hunting was like the first blog that ever covered this, and they were selling like crazy. So that was our bootstrapping mechanism for Behance. You described the first five years
0: of the business on Tim Ferriss' podcast in the following way. Five years of bootstrapping as a small team valuing resourcefulness over the resources we didn't have. A few near-death experiences in that process. I wasn't sure if you were being literal or... (laughs) (laughs)
1: It was more figurative. Okay, so Um, you
0: can tell us about those near-death experiences. For the company.
1: The company definitely almost died a few times. I mean, first of all, this was through 2008, which was a very difficult time. No one was spending money on anything for a little bit of time there. Also, we were um, hand-to-mouth. So we were selling paper products. We were doing conferences that we started relatively early in the business and uh, sessions, like anything that would basically pay the bills. And there were times where I would sit down with, um, our office manager, Brittany at the time, and we would go over the books and we would realize that we're basically two months away from not making payroll. And that would just give me so much angst, but also motivation. I was like, okay, what am I going to do to make sure that that becomes three months in in one week?
0: And you gamified it. I read that you and Matthias and your team made bets all the time about things that people would have to do if you all got to a certain milestone and any of those that you could remember?
1: Yeah, there are a number of them, and this was us short-circuiting our award system, giving us some semblance of progress when there wasn't much. Um, one of them, I've been a lifelong vegetarian, and they all well wanted me to eat meat. So that was a big motivating factor for the team, strangely enough. Did you ever have to eat I the meat? I ended up two years later in Christmas dinner having to eat a piece of chicken off of one of our developer's forks. Um, and Had <laughs> you recover. I, you know, anything for the team. Right. Um, I also, uh, we had lots of fun things. We would, you know, make bets and we would, for certain milestones and then say we'll all, you know, have, you know, go out for beers after. I mean, we had lots of fun things, but it was, it was important for the culture and it was also important because, you know, it's, people can get motivated to do something over the long term, enough to like quit their job and come join you. That's the kind of stuff that gets people to sign up, but on a day by day basis, month by month, year by year you need other things, you need other things, and you need to kind of hack the system to find them. I'm wondering if you can tell us about the word meritocracy. I know
0: that you learned that word from your grandfather, and that was something that you were seeking to
1: embed in the company. The philosophy of Behance ultimately was creative meritocracy, was this idea that what if the best talent got the best opportunity as opposed to the talent that happened to go to the right agency or know the right person or have the right headhunter or have the right agent? What if it was actually more of a meritocracy? And we figured that if the community curates itself and the best work rises to the surface, we can get closer to this notion of creative meritocracy. And in inside the company, because we didn't hire people based on their previous experience titles or schools they went to or whatever else, but really based on the initiative that they had and our belief that they could easily develop the skills they would have to have to be successful, um, I always had a voluntary staffing model where we would ask people what projects they wanted to be on, as opposed to saying, you do this and you do that. And I always felt like If you give credit to the right people, they'll have more influence. And there were a number of mechanics that I felt we did to make it more of a meritocracy than maybe an ordinary company. Where did you learn these skills? I think a lot of them were inspired by the experiences I had at Pine Street, for sure. I mean, I had three years where we were bringing in, whether it was people like Malcolm Gladwell or executive coaches or famous writers to share their best practices and and uh, I was always there, listening, taking notes, and hearing oftentimes the same talk many times. And so that probably was part of it. And a part of it was also just I always liked tinkering with organizational design. I always liked thinking about maybe we should make a new chart and you know a new system or a new this or a new that. And and also always welcomed the team to poo poo it and say this isn't working for us. So it was a it was part of the fun. It was part of the art of management for me was uh, tinkering with these systems. You've said that entrepreneurs
0: must devote a portion of their minds to constantly processing uncertainty. So you sacrifice a degree of being present. This has been a struggle to balance, especially in the early days. Scott, can you tell us a bit more about that struggle and how that impacted your life? It would seem that it's not the kind of struggle you're pushing against actually having. It's something you need to embrace
1: to be able to succeed. Well, I think that When you're embarking on certain types of projects that are guttural, you know, that you feel deeply invested in, that are creative and that are bold over the long term, there is ultimately tons of uncertainty, ambiguity, anxiety. It's tempting to say, well, I'm just going to leave it in the office. I don't have to carry this around with me. I'm going to shut off and shut on. Show me one person successful who does that, please. I don't think it's possible. No. Um, And so, and, and rather than, rather than like suffering from it and having this weird relationship with it, what I found helpful was just to accept this part of my brain, like RAM in a computer, that I was allocating to this process that would run forever. And it was just chronicling through, like, how is this world changing? What should we be doing? What am I, what are the unknown unknowns? Like this back of my head part, but it wasn't easy. I mean, I remember on my honeymoon, you know, having this part of me still on and I didn't feel ever truly present there. And I remember struggling with that. You know, this I'm probably hopefully only going to do this once in my life. You know, why is that part of me still kind of churning? And it, it is part of the price I believe that you pay for embarking on a journey like this. And I don't think it's reasonable to say that one can just turn it off because it's like a child. You know, you're responsible for a child that's always going to be on your mind. It's
0: interesting in using a sort of child framework, yeah. people don't think about A work-life balance when it comes to having to take care of their children. It's something you just have to do all the time. And a lot of people ask me about work-life balance. How do I manage that? And I don't know what that is, because if you really love what you're doing and you're really committed to it, it's just part of your overall life. Now I could be absolutely delusional, and I've been asking myself a question that Jocelyn Gly talks about, you know, who are you without the doing, and I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) Um, But it it is hard to delineate between what you consider work and what you consider
1: life. And I think more recently I've started to believe that, for me at least, happiness is about feeling fully utilized. Mm. And being utilized requires both professional and personal aspects of my life to be active. I want to feel utilized in relationships. I want to feel, in the sense that I'm engaging in them, I want to feel utilized at work and with my skills, you know? And and I actually, when I took the deviation to become a full-time venture capitalist, I actually felt like part of me died. There was an atrophy. I felt like I had hung up my spurs a little too soon, and I struggled with that. And that was in the years after
0: the acquisition. We'll get to that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth noting that in the same year that you launched Behance, yes. you... Went to Harvard Business School, <laughs> Yeah. and you went to study with Teresa Amabile and worked towards your MBA. What possessed you to do both at the same time? Well, I think I um, and get married, I guess yeah, too.
1: It was a, it was a, those were tough years, back to like the near company death experiences. Like I, I felt overwhelmed, and I, I was on. Um, I started taking this anti-nausea medication, and I wasn't sure why I was always nauseated. I was like, do I have celiac disease? Like, what is this? And it was probably just the fact that I was, you know, I'd signed up for a lot, of, way too much, too quickly, at the same time, kind of a theme for me. But business school, to in some to some extent, was a hedge. I wasn't sure if this Behance thing would work, and I, and I felt like, okay, well, I can... Keep running this and see if I if it's enough to keep going, you know, or or maybe business school helped me figure out how to morph it into a real business. And so it was in some ways it was partly that. But then about a year into it, I went to my team, which was now Matthias, Dave, and and and, and Chris, who joined our engineering team. And I said, "Listen, I'm prepared to drop out now. Like I'm all in. Um, what do you think I should do? Like what's most helpful to the team? Should I complete this MBA?" And year two, I'll be able to only be in Boston about two days a week, and I'll be here the rest. Do you think the net value to the team is better, or should I just quit because you need me full time? And they actually said to me, you know what? We have a good plan. We have a good operating cadence. We think you being our business leader and maybe having this MBA is going to help. You know, they were kind of almost investing in me and giving me permission and pushing me to finish. So it was an interesting um, decision we made together.
0: I find it interesting that, and a bit ironic, I think, that you had bad standardized test scores, um, which, (laughs) you know, your grandfather helped create, and yet you still got into Harvard Business School.
1: There are the the two. You know, the I was always a really bad Spanish student, and my mother was a Spanish teacher, and I really was bad at standardized tests, which is hard as uh, Stanley Kaplan's grandson. I am Go too. Go figure. I, it's just there's <laughs> very
0: you, there's nuance in the answers, and sometimes you don't know which one to pick because there's nuance yes. in all of them. It's the
1: nuances that throw us off. Absolutely.
0: I I don't know, at least for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. In 2012, all of your team's intense efforts paid off. Adobe purchased Behance for a reported $150 million, and you joined the company as vice president of product. How did Adobe first approach you about acquiring your company?
1: Obviously, it was a natural partner for us. We were trying to build the largest platform of creative professionals in the world. Did you have the sense that this is who you wanted to sell the company to? No. Our first contact with Adobe was actually in around 2009. And they reached out, and they were thinking of maybe we should do this little community thing as like a marketing channel. They um, they wanted to acquire us, and I remember going to meet with them in California. And for whatever reason, after the meeting, I like, pulled to the side of the road, and I got like physically sick, and um, and I realized like I. It was very emotional for me, this idea of, of, of quitting before we had even started. I saw it as quitting because I uh, it wasn't, um, you know, a, a big number, and it also wasn't clear we would be even an important part of the company, and, and, uh, and that visceral reaction made me say, you know what? I don't want to do this. We're going to stop these conversations. I'm just going to focus and build this business, and then um, a couple years later, there was a, a partnership opportunity on the table that got um, interesting for both parties, and I was very willing to you know, have Adobe uh, pay us for something and have a partnership. And then that fizzled and then yet again and happened another year later. And uh, and then it became clear that we would become so important to the company that they weren't willing to do it as a partnership. And so that fizzled. And then finally, Adobe made this very historic decision to turn their business from a software business into a services business, which meant that suddenly instead of buying Adobe Creative Suite and uh, Adobe not really worrying about how much you were actually using the products. Suddenly, they needed to know that you were using it on a month-by-month basis because they wanted to retain you as a customer, as a subscription business. And I think that was a very healthy move for the company because suddenly the ongoing service to the customer became a priority. And I think the company realized we need to build a community. Like, we need to get to know our customers and what tools they're using and why and and, uh, and build that level of engagement. And so suddenly Behance became a core part of the strategy. And I really, really resonated with the management team uh, in, in their vision for what we could do. And, and for me, the three factors for the acquisition were, is it a great return for the team and for investors from a financial perspective? Is it great for the customers, meaning where we want to go in our roadmap? Will this help us as opposed to hurt us? And will it allow us to continue to do what we're doing as a team? Because none of us wanted to stop. And those three boxes were checked. You've said that entrepreneurship is about
0: identifying edges that will someday become the center, and building and leading teams over the long haul to turn such a vision into a reality despite the odds. What is the key to identifying those
1: edges? The the key to identifying those edges are people that think differently than you. In one word, diversity. Um, you have a you're you're sitting with a group of people. And um, imagine that most of them you went to similar schools of and you have similar backgrounds and whatever else and you're thinking about where your product should go. It's likely that everyone's going to think something in the similar, you know, design space of possibility. And then if you have a few people who have just a different upbringing, speak different languages, have a different background, they might say things that at first seem unreasonable to the rest of the group because they're like, what? You know, didn't think of that. But if you have a lot of mutual respect and value for what this could mean for the product, then what you start to do is sort of socialize the edges of this unreasonable idea. And suddenly the team's like, well, wait a second. Maybe that's the future. Maybe that's the edge that will someday become the center. And so I like to say that innovation and entrepreneurship happens at the edge of reason because it is finding something that is unreasonable to most, otherwise it would have been done. And it's becoming more familiar with it in some strange way and then doubling down.
0: In a Reddit Ask Me Anything, you were asked, what would stop someone from entering the space you are operating in and doing the same thing? And I loved your response. You said, it matters not what you do, but how you do it. In almost all cases, the stuff we use and love every day existed previously, but in a less superior form. And of course, the novelty of any idea is short-lived. Only the execution endures. When you were able to create this partnership and, and have this acquisition with Adobe, did you worry that the quality of the product
1: would in any way suffer? Well, we certainly worried about it before we joined the company. And during that acquisition process, my job was to make sure that we were set up to succeed You know, part of that was making some agreements with the person who I reported to at the time. Also agreeing to take on more responsibility as a leader in the company was a key part of it because I was inserting myself as opposed to isolating us and catching people when they would say us and, you know, them and us. It's like, no, 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 it's we. Um, And there was a lot of that in the first year. So in order to successfully integrate, I mean, you have to have shared objectives and you have to have a shared vision, but there was never a moment in that acquisition where they deviated. I mean, really... People talk about unicorns in the tech world as the true unicorn to me is a company and is an acquisition that goes swimmingly. It usually doesn't. And uh, in this case, all of our leaders, a lot of them actually are still there today, 10 years plus later. It's incredible. and, And many of them have escalated to different roles in the company. Did you suffer from that depression that your grandfather had? The hardest part for me was when I left Adobe after my three years there. Why did you decide to do that? I know you went
0: to work for a venture capital firm, but what made you decide to go?
1: I, I think I took for granted the fact that everything I had done in my career always was the right thing for me. And so I was at a point three years in where everyone was telling me, you should be an investor. I had done some investments as seed investments in friends' companies that I was a product and design advisor for, like Pinterest. You know, that, that had become successful companies. And, and then there was this thought of, well, maybe I should be an investor. You know, if everyone's telling me this is what I should be, that's what I should be. And I learned one of those painful lessons that just because everyone says you should do something, it doesn't mean they know you better than you know you. And I figured, okay, well, I'm, I am meant to move on in part because I didn't want to be too defined by what I had done. I figured it would be healthy to move on. And so I did. And it was hard. I remember kind of being um, cut off of my at behance.com email address and being like, oh my goodness, like this was me. I I can't imagine this is no longer my email. But you
0: left the VC firm after seven (laughs) months, and in late 2017, after two years away, you rejoined Adobe as chief product officer and executive vice president of the Creative Cloud. So the design world was elated to see (laughs) you back. What was at the heart of your return? What gave you the sense that it was the right thing to do?
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because I... um, I became fascinated over my three years at Adobe with making tools for creative people, making creative tools, and also the possibilities of creativity becoming more collaborative. For so long, it had been an isolated discipline. You basically sat in front of a computer screen on your own. And, um, and the thought of two people being in the same document was crazy, and most designers would say, that's that's the worst idea ever. However, I was starting to see evidence of different intersections or, or different fields intersecting to make great things. Um, I started to see experienced designers using animation products. I started to see other stakeholders in the company becoming key parts of the design process other than designers. And I started to think, gosh, you know, this is an opportunity for a service like Creative Cloud to really get right. I also felt like Adobe was the right company to figure it out. And I felt like I, I was the right candidate or a good candidate to help crack it. So... I had kept in touch with Shantanu, who's our CEO, and uh, and we had had a few, a few dinners and, and discussions, and he would always say, if you're ever interested, and I was always thinking in my head, there's no way I'm going to come back. I mean, I already detached myself. I already cut the cord. But it became more interesting after I had that experience being an investor feeling like some part of me was not being utilized anymore and that I wasn't happy. And I realized what it was, was I wasn't building teams anymore. I wasn't building products anymore. And I missed looking at creativity every day and making thinking, things yeah and, and thinking about how i can be a contributor i think i'm happiest when i'm making things it could be anything you know,
0: you know it could be in bed it could be a meal it could be a podcast a lesson plan but that making it's as simple
1: of, as that and how did i not know that about myself until i stopped doing it i don't know i guess that's when you learn yeah
0: i want to talk a little bit about your design philosophies you've said that for you how you define design is always changing mm-hmm. so what is it for you right now
1: Hmm. I mean, what is design? It's one of those questions that I feel, you know, is always hard to define because it, it it's always about context to me. But, um, you know, a big part of design to me these days is about um, helping drive alignment. I mean, in my current role, let's just, I'll start there. A, a big part of my job is to get big, different organizations of people with different objectives aligned around a vision. And, uh, and I find, you know, that, notion of a mock-up is worth a thousand meetings. I mean, it's really true. You get people in and you start to debate what a product should be and how and what the problem is for the customer or whatever else. But if you just start to show, uh, show, first of all, show the friction and then show the solution, everyone just maps to it quickly. And suddenly people align. Now, the beauty of alignment is that it it's an alternative to process. You know, in big companies, the reason we hate big companies is because they throw process at every problem they have. But sometimes instead of throwing more process at a problem, If you just use design to get people more aligned, you don't even need process. And that's when people become, you know, more efficient and better work gets done. I have a real issue with the whole notion of a process
0: because it makes things very systematic. And I don't think creativity is like that. I I wish that there was a way we could just go through A and then B and then C and then (laughs) woohoo, we get to Z. And it's amazing every time. It doesn't work that way. I can't answer the
1: question, what kind of process do I have? And that's the competitive advantage of startups. You know, you have a group of people sitting around a table. Everyone knows what you want to achieve. Everyone's working hard. Everyone is therefore able to ambiently prioritize. And there is very little process. And as a result, they can switch it up as they go and and get to a great solution. Your
0: first book, Making Ideas Happen, Overcoming the Obstacles Between Vision and Reality, the book you penned in coffee shops by <laughs> night and released in 2010, it's been described as a reality check that execution is essential to ideation. But what I really loved about it is that it profiles a wide array of people that are approaching things in entirely different ways. Mm-hmm. So it's not a systematic guidebook like you do this and this. It's right. showing the myriad ways we create and make. I read that it began as research you were conducting in business school. Is that correct? Yeah. So what made you decide to turn that
1: research into a book? I was interested in the practices of the most productive, creative people and teams in the world. That was always my question was, why is it that some people just keep churning it out? Whether it is someone like Stefan Sagmeister, whether it is certain, you know, photographers or illustrators and authors, you know, you look at someone like James Patterson, he writes, he claims to write, he works on seven novels at once. He's written written more best-selling books than Random House has published books combined. And um, in terms of volume, you know, and, and what is the story here? Now there's the Complete other end of the spectrum, like a Thomas Kincaid, like a kind of a factory production approach. And then there's the other side of the spectrum of completely non-scalable, non-organized, never ships anything. But what are the practices that that the best creative individuals and teams use? And that was that the book was my own sort of research expedition um Teresa Mabale who's the professor I worked with at, at HBS. She's a professor that focuses on creativity in organizations and she did a number of studies including this massive journaling project where she tried to get people to journal how felt how they, how creative and productive they felt every day and and one of the learnings from that was the fact that progress begets progress and you have to kind of merchandise progress to the team to help them continue to make progress. There are a number of learnings from Building that. Building momentum. Yeah. She agreed to be my advisor for this sort of study, and that uh, that ultimately became uh, the book. We discussed how Behance grew out of your
0: frustration with the creative world. Uh, your new book, The Messy Middle, was also born out of frustration. Can you tell us how?
1: Yeah. Well, the frustration that inspired The Messy Middle was uh, our collective obsession with starts and finishes. We love these pithy summaries of stories, and the press is very guilty of, of of just drawing so much attention to whether it's a a wonderful, extraordinary finish or a horrible, you know, going bankrupt. And people love the romanticism of the start, but like, why aren't people talking about the volatility of the middle? The two steps forward, back, one step back, endless ambiguity, uncertainty, and anxiety, uh, and that that needs to be overcome. And uh, and I think it's especially important because. In this volatile middle of every bold creative project, we are not our best selves at the highs or the lows. At the lows, we're not our best selves because we make decisions out of fear. And there were a lot of examples in Behance of things we did out of fear of competition that we had to undo. We're also not our best selves at the highs because we falsely attribute the things that we did to the things that work. The ego gets the better of us and we start to lose self-awareness and then make fatal mistakes." And so why aren't we talking more about navigating this volatility? And, and that's what the book is about. You discuss
0: how the middle is fundamentally misunderstood, how the process is not linear, but rather a series of staggered steps. And in a sense, simply knowing that in and of itself is valuable advice for anybody embarking on a project, though it might be hard to believe. Have you been able to enjoy the middle of your endeavors? Have you been more
1: cognizant now of what it means to be in the middle? I have been. And um, and I think, you know, to me, the middle now is about building muscle, you know, that you can use towards something. None, none of the middle seems wasted to me. It's sort of like the middle is meant to be mind. Mind for what? Mind for insights around how you're going to endure the next challenge, how you're going to optimize the next product or the next team. And it's almost like in um, one of these old video games where you're running around collecting coins and To me, like, the middle is you're running around collecting these coins and gems and tools, and you're throwing them in your toolkit. And so many people are focused on, oh, we're not there yet. But how about, like, all this stuff you're collecting? I also think that the middle is where you begin to see the
0: tangible efforts of resilience and grit. These two words that people are very high on now. What does it mean to be resilient and what does it mean to have grit? And I think that's where it happens because that's where you have to keep going when you don't
1: know what the possible outcome is going to be. Just every day becomes a step into resilience. Yeah. We talk a lot in creativity about how constraints fuel creativity. Constraints also fuel survival because in, in some weird way, it gives you that muscle of resourcefulness as opposed to relying on, you know, the resources that could just be spended and, and gone in any any moment. And so the more you survive, you know, the better you fit you are. And that's, I think, why a lot of companies that raise way too much money out of the gate and always can throw resources at any problem they encounter along the way, fail to build that level of uh, resourcefulness and resilience. And ingenuity when you don't have enough. 100%. I love how you begin the book by
0: writing about how you wanted to start it with the story of your own middle at Behance. And you couldn't remember it and that it was a blur and they were lost years for you. And you write in the book how when retelling Behance's history, you usually skip over the middle, bypassing things like how anti-nausea medication was (laughs) the only way you could eat, which you talked about here. Was this book in any way a reaction to telling the nice,
1: safe story so many times? Um, I think it was, because we had an exceptionally difficult story in the sense that we were bootstrapped for five years. Near death experiences. and, And a lot of, you know, fits and starts along the way and, and venture back after that for another year and a half or so. And I think that it's easy to tie a bow around this story. And I just found it so interesting that it was anything but. And the, the process of, of writing this book, I figured I, you know, how could I not start with my own middle? I I tried to get into the sort of the tangibility of what it actually was, and um, and that you know I I talk in the, I mentioned in the book the only way I was actually able to trigger my memory was going back in my iPhone to all these like weird screenshots and photos I had taken in those middle years to just remind myself what was going on. You write that the dirty
0: little secret that entrepreneurs hate to admit is just how fine the line is between their success and failure. Mm -hmm. I love that. In the book, you address the interesting notion of how teams can make bad decisions, not only at low points, but at high points as well. And you just mentioned the whole notion of the ego and how that impacts the decision-making. Those bad decisions that come from ego, how is it possible to prevent them?
2: Hmm.
1: Well, I think the team around you oftentimes sees your faults and they see your weaknesses and they see your blind spots. And the first question is, is the team and is the culture permissible for the questioning and the process of just, you know, people talking to you and, and, and raising their hand and saying, I disagree. So asking for that or hoping for that outside you know, We had a lot of fighting at the hands um, and in a good way. I mean, we, we actually would always be proud of the fact that we could go in a room and really duke it out And I think it was a very healthy process because we were exposing each other's blind spots. We were challenging our assumptions, and it was influencing. And we had so much respect for each other that we would always share conviction when we resolved it. But we would have a lot of fights about priorities and about what we should do with products and and everything else. How do you resolve those fights without walking away? Well, I think, first, we have to fight apathy ruthlessly. So when people do walk away, you have to pull them back in. And the quiet people in the room, you have to make sure that they're voicing their view Sometimes the answer is, okay, let's all make our case. Let's sleep on it. If you feel it's too charged and that will make you make the wrong decision for no reason, just the drama. But I think um, to me, it's always coming back to like visuals and like, let's go back. Okay. So where, you know, what are we talking about again? Let's draw it out. Let's do it again. Let's do it again until we are all aligned with what we're looking at. Because most of the disagreements are really about misalignments as opposed to truly different beliefs. There was a term that I learned in your book that you
0: quoted your mentor, John Maeda, who says a good team does a lot of friendly front stabbing mm-hmm. instead of backstabbing. What is, can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Well, I think that um, that wisdom of John, of which there's much wisdom of John that I always think about in my life. But um, for that one, I mean, it's you have to have an environment where people do confront each other when there is a sense of permissible fighting and disagreement. And, you know, I have always with my teams kept what I call an elephant list. And the elephant list is the things, the elephants in the room that, for whatever third rail reasons, no one wants to talk about or will offend someone else or whatever. And I try to, as a leader, interject one or two elephants whenever we're together to try to just make progress. And also, sometimes we even have fun making a period where we just talk about the elephants. And it builds this culture of it's almost like funny that we're talking about the things that make us uncomfortable. And that's a key part of kind of eliminating the organizational debt that accrues in any in any organization. Organizational debt is the accumulation of decisions that leaders should have made but didn't. You actually talked about over the course of
0: building Behance, you didn't listen to the advice of outside people enough. How would you encourage people to do that and also be able to make the decisions about what is good advice or what isn't? Is there some sort of an internal? Meter that you can point to, or some some way of being able to understand when to take that advice.
1: Well, then a few a few thoughts on advice. I mean, for one, I've always tried to discern the difference between cynicism and criticism. And, and how
0: do you see them as different?
1: I mean, the cynics, it's like you're not helping me, and uh, and I I really just discard it. People are just like, well, that will never work. It's like you know, the hell with you. But um, but the critics, you know, I love people who look at what I'm doing and say, you're missing this, you're missing that, this is off. Um, you know, I was going through the product and, of course, now in my role at Adobe, all of my friends are always inundating me with what Lightroom is doing wrong and what Photoshop is doing wrong. And That I mean, must that, be fun. I love it. I mean, it is, oh, okay. it's, it's It's helpful. It is. I mean, it's, 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 sometimes I don't feel it's scalable for me, but it's uh, helpful. But I also think that it's important to have and to be able to manage and reconcile two opposite pieces of advice. In fact, I would even say that it's dangerous to get one piece of advice without trying to get the opposite, so you can sit with it and figure out what your intuition is. You believe that
0: hard work is the single greatest competitive advantage in anything, even more than talent.
1: Hmm. I actually think that hard work is more important than talent because I think that uh, you can you can work around failures, right? You can if you if you figure something out. If, if it takes you a few tries that someone else, you know, who's smarter than you uh, would figure out once. If you are persistent, like, persistence just seems to outperform smarts any day of the week. And, um, you know, I've, I've benefited from that many times. How are you able to imbue that in others? It seems as if
0: especially young people really want that insta-fame now mm-hmm. where they want it to happen very quickly. And I've found that it's not just working hard. It tends to be working hard for over a long period of time. Yeah. Well, I I think,
1: I mean, the way I would really frame the competitive advantage, by the way, is the competitive advantage is doing work that no one else wants to do. I mean, literally, you're doing something that no one else wants to do. And oftentimes the work that no one wants to do is the hardest work, is the most redundant work, is the most mundane work. And so I always would push myself to do like the stuff that is annoying me the most because I figured, you know what? This is the stuff that no one else wants to do. The like competitive what? side what, of me. What
0: would what would be an example of that?
1: Like sending one more sales, you know, email or something like that, or you know, doing one more read through of this talk because you know I'm so freaking tired of it, and no one would do this again. I'm going to do it one more time. I think that there's that. That's the competitive side of me that would um, play up the ability to just work harder. Um, but I mean, listen, I'm not saying I am a workaholic. I I try to really spend my time and energy wisely, but I think it's important to think about like how you're going to outperform the competitive advantages to outwork and also to stick together long enough to figure it out.
0: Scott, the last thing I want to talk with you about is something that you wrote on your Instagram feed. You declared that you learned more from your two kids than you ever expected. (laughs) So like what?
1: One of the things that was fascinating to me when you see a a new child come into the world is, in some ways, they're a blank slate. And then you start to see, in almost like a laboratory environment at first, what anything they're exposed to ends up doing to them. You know, whatever they happen to see becomes their lexicon. Whatever makes them laugh becomes their sense of humor. It's a fascinating—I found that really interesting, and it taught me a lot about— the sources of ideas and the sources of instinct and, and, and also like how biased we are by just what we've experienced and how limited we are in our imagination based on wh- whatever circumstances we had around us. And, and um, so I, I think I've learned a lot in that sense. I've also learned a lot in terms of patience and, and the fact that uh, you, know, you just have to kind of slow down and remember what's important and obviously those lessons as well.
0: What kinds of things are your kids making?
1: They are uh, they are well. We're currently making gummy bears, um, which is a Custom m- more intricate bears? process than you might think. Yes, wow, that's they, they wanted to ambitious. do that. We are building the Statue of Liberty out of Legos, nice. um, and hopefully not following directions to the T. And a lot of you know a lot of drawing, painting, that sort of thing. And also they're also using the uh, some of the drawing applications on the iPad that Adobe makes, which is always fun to see them use a product that you make. Scott Belsky, thank you so much for thank making you. the world a better place for creative people. And thank you for joining me today
0: on Design Matters. Likewise, and thanks for having me. It's an honor. Scott Belsky's new book is The Messy Middle, Finding Your Way Through the Hardest and Most Crucial Part of Any Bold Venture. You can find out more about Scott on his website at scottbelsky.com, and you can find him on Instagram at scottbelsky. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.